0: Welcome to Power to the Patients,
1: a LinkedIn Live and podcast series hosted by Power, where clinical research leaders across sponsors, sites, CROs, and patient advocacy groups discuss patient centricity in clinical trials. We explore the bottlenecks in today's system, challenge the status quo, and talk about future opportunities for innovation. Let's dive in.
0: Go. Thank you so much for taking the time to join me here. I'm really excited for this conversation. This is Power to the Patients, where we explore topics about clinical operations, clinical research, um, and specifically through the lens of patient centricity um, and what we can be doing as an industry to put patients in the center of our decision-making and the way we design research. So really appreciate you again coming on to have this conversation. Maybe actually just for folks who are following along who haven't had the chance to meet with you. I know that you've met many folks in the industry, but maybe give us a uh, a quick sketch of your uh, your career and how, how you got to where you are today. I think that's probably a helpful place to start.
1: That sounds great. Well, thanks, Brandon. Thanks for having me on. This is a topic that is not just near and dear to my heart, but something that like really gets me out of bed in the morning that I love to sort of focus on. And yeah, after you've been around for a while, after you have a little bit of gray hair going on, you have like naturally meet a few people in our space but I look forward to meeting more and making more connections. So yeah, my name is Scott Schliebner. I've spent, you know, I've been in the clinical development space for almost 30 years, focusing on patient engagement, patient focused approaches, how to make clinical trials uh, more accessible and less burdensome for patients and families. Days, I wear a few different hats, I uh, serve as strategic advisor for several different tech and patient recruitment, startup firms in the clinical development space. And then I have my own little uh, consulting firm called Rare Clinical. And um, love patient-focused approaches. I think we have some great progress uh, that we're making in our industry. But as you know, Brandon, there is a long, long way to go. So there's sure. so much more we can do.
0: Sure, yeah. And actually, I saw the I saw the update on LinkedIn uh, recently about uh, Rare Clinical. Maybe just uh, talk a little bit about that and uh, what's next for Scott.
1: Sure. Thanks. Yeah. You know, I um, I've been working in the kind of clinical development CRO space for quite a while. I recently wrapped up an engagement and um, was looking to see what was going to be next for me and um, had a few sort of projects keep coming my way in the rare disease space. You know, some of them involve um how do we bring trials to families' homes via both technology and home healthcare care nursing? Some of that involves, you know, how do we even up front make sure these clinical protocols that we work with, before they're finalized, you know, how do we pressure test them a little bit to make sure that they're not created, you know, kind of almost artificially in a bubble and, and to where they are not realistic for the participants we rely upon. So I try to get involved with things like that as well. But yeah, advisory consulting firm working in the rare disease space. I think that rare clinical development um, brings with it many kind of unique challenges inherent to the space. It's an area where there's not uh, nearly enough treatments for patients. And so um, it's an area that I kind of feel dedicated and passionate about. So looking forward to trying to help um, both patient organizations as well as our biopharma sponsors, you know, execute studies better in the rare space.
0: Sure. And maybe this is a good jumping-off point for um, for the topic of patient-centricity. As you think about the rare space, and you know, as you look back on uh, your career, I'm kind of curious. Take us on a journey of of patient-centricity uh, in clinical research. Uh, where was it, you know, 30 years ago when you were just getting started in research, and how have you seen, you know, that idea evolve over the last <laughs> 30 years?
1: <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, it's been a journey. I mean, I'm pleased with progress. You know. I mean, geez, I don't know. 30 years ago, I don't think we were even really talking about it at all. I feel like we started to get traction on this topic, you know, maybe a decade ago. I mean, certainly there were some patient advocates um, working in the industry. There were um, patient organizations advocating for patients in the patient voice. Patient knows their disease the best. Let's hear from the patients. But it took a little while, I think, for our our risk-averse Pharma partners to be open to ideas, to be open to say a non-scientist or a non-physician could actually come to the table with actually some helpful information. Right? We've seen, of course. Fast forward now, we have um, we have the FDA and we have other regulatory agencies that are fully on board, encouraging um, patient-driven research, encouraging the patient voice. A decade ago, we used to do novel things like. Let's run this protocol by a patient or a patient group or a panel, and let's just see what they think. You know, and I remember early days of working in like Duchenne muscular dystrophy, for example, and you had this interesting scenario where you had, you know, the regulators, like an FDA, for example, wanted a certain endpoint, and then you had a drug developer, like a Sarepta or someone else, working in that space thought, well, that that endpoint may or may not be realistic, right? We can't wait, say, four years to see an endpoint. We need something that's actionable. And then you had patients saying, you know, you guys are both asking to, to measure something that's actually not even really relevant to my day-to-day. You know, it doesn't make a difference to me. What would make a difference to me is if I could, like, walk across the kitchen or if I could reach up to a cupboard or if I was able to support my child, right? And um, so, I think, Bringing those three threads together, regulators, drug developers, and patients slash families slash caregivers, I'd group them together, try to bring that together so that we're we're finding um, endpoints, but also clinical trials and assessments that really address all the important stakeholders, right? So patients have often historically been left out. The irony, of course, is we don't create new medicines and drug development does not move forward unless patients Really participate. So, um, we've often considered, we often have not considered our end users really until it's a little too late. So, I think that's been a really fantastic development of saying, okay, let's listen to the patient voice. Let's incorporate patients into the development process. And let's think a little bit more about our end user the way a lot of other industries might think about your customer or who you're ultimately serving. So, kind of like I said at the kickoff, great progress, but so much more to do, right? Sure, yeah. And that story
0: about the endpoints uh, really resonates here. If we were to back up and, or if you were to back up and give the industry broadly a score, mm. a, letter, a, le- a letter grade as if we were back in school again, like on this idea of patient-centricity, where, where, where do you think we are today?
1: Well, I'm a tough grader, Brandon. <laughs> um, I love that. No, you know, I really love our space. I love our industry. For those of you who are listening and 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 work in the clinical research space, I personally love what we do. Yet we're very art. We still remain highly archaic, right? Like Brandon, you've created an incredible company power to help address problems. There are problems and things that could be better everywhere we look, every corner of our clinical drug development process. So I think we can continue to do better. I used the risk averse word term earlier. I think that holds us back. You know, I think what we're seeing right now is, you know, when COVID hit, we were forced to adopt and try new things, right? Necessity literally being the mother of invention around COVID, we move forward with things like decentralized clinical trials and new models and paradigms. And now that we're kind of through that and we've experimented with a new paradigm, it feels like the, the the pendulum is shifting backward to maybe that was just an experiment. Maybe we don't see the ROI. Let's go back to the way we worked before. So, I'm going to give our industry a grade based on some progress. Sure. But um, I think we need to be a little bit more consistent and pushing it. So, I'm going to give us I'm going to give us a solid C. Like we're passing, but I think we are you know, we're not really cutting it as far as I'm concerned.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. we're not getting into Harvard with, the, with these grades. Yeah, we're not. Um, okay, so a C, a C is a, uh, you are a tough grader. Um, <laughs> what does it look like to be a, a B student in Scott's world?
1: Yeah, so what does that look like? I think that looks like, you know, this concept of patient centricity. I, I, I know we have a couple of listeners out there who hear the term yeah. patient centricity, and they shudder, and they really think the term is even inappropriate, right? Not sure what the right term is, patient-focused, or do we just drop the word patient, right? We're really talking about people. We're talking about people like ourselves. I think we're thinking about patients more. I think we're starting to recognize that they bring some value, but I still think that they're off to the side, right? We're having a discussion on power to the patients, and we don't actually have a patient here with us, right? If you're having a clinical development meeting um, with your translational scientists and your medical affairs group, and you're trying to lock down a protocol, do you have a patient sitting there at the table with you, making sure their input is heard or a panel of patients to make sure you're hearing a variety of diversity of, of things. So I think we we've taken some steps, uh, but you also have people out there that look at maybe patient engagement efforts or, um, let's say, patient services or patient concierge things around how to make things easier for patients. You have people really questioning, I think, still the ROI on some of those efforts. Is it just a soft, fuzzy, nice thing to do, or does this mm. make a difference? We still hear stories of patients participating in clinical trials. Their data is critical to the trial and, and moving clinical development forward. But then they can, they never hear like how the trial went, right? It's like mm. they were part of it. They helped make it happen, and we don't quite even circle back to like communicate the results. We're, we're making progress in that area too, but there's a long ways to go. So I think I think going from C to B, I think we've got to be a little more thorough and inclusive with patients sure. broadly speaking. You know, um, upfront in the development phase, and then thinking through some of the um, some of the technology, some of the data collection, some of the um, assessments we're looking for, and protocols, right? they're getting more and more complicated each year. Those data points are really nice, but that has an impact on a, burdens, a burden score of how much we ask of patients. So I think truly patient-centric protocols probably are a little easier to participate in and probably demand a little less. And that would get that would get the grade up into the B range. Dr.
0: Gotcha. So in your mind, there's um, really an element of uh, protocol design here and how do we reduce the burden for patients as we think about it and bringing those patients to the table. One thing that you said that um, at the very beginning, I wanted to, um, I want to pull on this thread a little bit is uh, the term patient centricity might make some folks shudder. Yeah, uh, talk, talk to me about that.
1: Yeah. I mean, if you spend time with patients and families or, or, or advocates who try to represent, you know, their constituents, we're really trying to, you know, shift a little bit of a mindset here around, um thinking about patients as a key stakeholder as part of the process. Patient centricity has gotten a little traction as a term for what we're doing. Sometimes it almost feels like that's just checking a box. You know, I think we're seeing that a little bit on the Mm. diversity representation side of things as well right now. Like, are we really, you know, doing things to be appropriate with patients or to be representative, or are we just, you know, running that by someone and they sort of, cursory check a box and say, yeah, we're thinking about it. So I think the patient centricity term, I'd be curious what you hear, not that there's one appropriate term or run one accurate label, but um, I feel like sometimes we talk about patients, quote unquote, as this, um, I don't know, usual group of people, right? Subjects that are studying, the reality is, you know, Patients are you and I, right? Patients are people. Patients have jobs. They have families. They have children. They're about to get married. They're about to go on a honeymoon. Mm -hmm. They have lives. And so, transitioning from patients to just really just trying to move towards people, right? Move towards like people and almost think about the patients we serve as really our ultimate customers, I think would be a way of progressing that. But when you talk to people, Brandon, and you're interacting with sponsors and patients and sites, you know, what do you hear in terms of a term that people feel like is appropriate or really represents what we're trying to do?
0: Well, I I can start with what I think is inappropriate, (laughs) which is um, subject and uh, even, yeah, subject and even, uh, Participants feels rather transactional as well, right? I think there's a movement to try to humanize things a little bit. Um, I've heard some folks vote the idea of calling um, individuals study partners. I think that that maybe abstracts a little too much uh, the role of the individual and and who they are in the journey of this uh, of this research. But yeah, it's certainly a uh, it's certainly a fine needle to thread. I uh, I can speak, I think, in terms of our ethos at Power a little bit, mm-hmm. which is that. In our mind, we've really started with patients as um, the primary uh, customer of our platform, right? In our minds, if we build something that's incredible for patients, if we build the best product for patients to learn about clinical research as an option, and we become the go-to destination for those patients because we've built that trust and we're building um, a product that they want to use and truly helps them in their journey, then we can have impact across uh, the research landscape um, and for um, our sites and sponsors as um, secondary and tertiary customers or users of our platform. But um, in our mind, it all starts with, you know, building a platform for the patients. Um, hence the yeah. the kind of ethos around the branding, the messaging, and the, the focus um, that we talk
1: about here. That's great. That's great yeah. because I realize patients are often not you know technically your client in this scenario right work's being done for a biopharma client how do you how do you balance i mean something i find is interesting is we end up in this patient recruitment really sort of bottleneck of the world right where the majority of trials are now behind schedule each year we put out more clinical studies that require more patients and we're noticing that these studies become more and more complex i.e. more hard, challenging, and burdensome for patients. We have people out there, I think, that are really doing the right thing in terms of thinking about long-term patient engagement, building relationships, building trust, educating, learning, two-way street. And then we also have a lot of scenarios that I'm sure you get your phone rings and it's like, hey, Brandon, we need 30 bodies for a trial, right? How do you balance this need of creating authentic long-term relationships, two-way streets with this more transactional need that comes up, I'm sure, around, that's great, we just need to recruit patients tomorrow. Can we just get people? How does that enter into the power world?
0: Yeah, it's a really, it's a really great question. And the way that we approach it is from a an ecosystem design standpoint. So if you think of our platform as kind of this Airbnb-like platform where people get on board and can kind of meet with each other and connect with each other on the platform. Mm-hmm. We need to design it in a way that, um, that serves each each person on the platform in the way that they need to be served, right? So um, we have one side of the, one half of the platform and, you know, probably um, the majority of what people can see of our platform, which is the patient-facing platform, right? That's, that's the, the view that patients can see. We make that for patients, designed for patients, much in the same way that Airbnb, you go on today and um, what you see is, you know, the view for for travelers. It's all the inventory, it's all the houses, all the photos, right? Then there's a completely different side of the platform, which we never see as travelers, which is what do hosts get? How do hosts think about upkeeping their homes and um, making sure that um, cleaning is taken care of and logistics and all of this kind of good stuff, right? How do they make sure that they can um, maximize the utilization of their homes? We have a separate side of the platform, which is a different product entirely, really, um, that's designed for the the researcher experience and how do we help researchers be more efficient in connecting with interested patients and bringing them in uh, to educate them about uh, the study um, and potentially become uh, participants? So the way that we think about it is, you know, it's it's not one product for everyone. Uh, The product actually has multiple surface areas that help individuals with different needs and different objectives uh, accomplish them.
1: Nice. I love that. That's great. And it's great that you can balance both of those because the reality is that, you know, we may want to, create good long-term relationships that are mutually beneficial for everyone. And then there is a little bit of a transactional piece here as well. So yeah, well, congrats on all the amazing progress you've made.
0: I I will say at the end of the day, I believe that there is a component, uh, there is an element from the patient's perspective of wanting to transact as well. I'll I'll, I'll reiterate, Uh, I think that uh, there is an element from the patient's perspective of wanting to transact as well. They come onto Mm -hmm. our platform to try to learn about trials. And when we look at our, our analytics, they're clicking the buttons to try to connect with the researchers. They're trying to transact with those researchers and learn more about the studies. So there's an element where both parties are actually trying to transact today. Um, and it's been far too hard for a long time. And that's the, that's the role that we really want to play. Um, there are individuals that want to meet with each other, have a conversation, share information, um, in two directions. uh, And we want to make that way easier.
1: Nice. That's yeah. awesome. Taking the, um, you know, the Airbnb analogy sure. that you have, right, and and the hosts and the travelers, I think is really helpful for us to think about a, a lot of folks who haven't seen your technology and your platform. It's a very simplistic way to sort of, at least for me to think about it. Do you see that, like, do you see that extending into analogous ways, like wherein the hosts, clinical trials, the, um, the sponsors are also, you know, rated based on um, quality of service quality of stay what was communication like did we enjoy participating in that pfizer study do you see a world like that where there's a little bit more of a two-way dynamic with feedback and, and such
0: Yeah, it's really interesting um and there's a, there's a lot of nuance i think in the way that that would have to happen right in this space very different than travel um where you can like post a review and post like right. a, a five-star rating and like publish that for everybody to see and for that to be okay i think that uh, a little bit of like a the FDA and IRB kind of guidelines around, uh, around marketing kind of come into play here um, in yeah. nuanced ways that you don't see it in other spaces. Um, I'd be curious to hear like, um, this is an interesting idea. Um, where's it coming from? What would you like to
1: see in the world? Yeah. Well, I just feel like, you know, taking that, putting, you know, power to the patients, right? Like putting information in their hands. So they have a sense of what's this experience going to be like for me? Can I read about fellow consumer who just participated in this and it was harder than they expected or more invasive or more burdensome, or the overall experience was great, I was communicated with, I knew what to expect, or is it more like, wow, the consent form was 24 pages and I'm very confused and I didn't realize I had to drive to the site weekly for 48 weeks, or or while they stayed in touch with us afterwards and updated us on the results. like. You could see a spectrum of experiences that could. I'm wondering if there's a way to do that without going down that the nuanced path of marketing and IRBs and regulations, but just a as someone who participated, not talking about the science or anything. Did I, you know, would I get like would I give you know would I recommend the Amazon app to someone after using it? Right? Would I give this a four star rating for just my experience in it? And I just wonder if that could almost maybe. Encourage, because you'd, you'd be talking about, I guess you'd probably be talking about the interplay of a sponsor. I picked on Pfizer, a sponsor, sure. perhaps a CRO, perhaps a clinical site, and your investigator might actually be more of your relevant touch point. But sure. together, would that encourage more focus on the participant experience if it was transparent, I guess?
0: Sure, it's a great idea. And how do you tease apart some of these things, right? To your point, some of the experience is very site specific. Some of the experience is based on the protocol, right? Like how burdensome was this protocol? How many times do I have to drive uh, into, the, into the site in order to, to participate in this, right? I think that how, do you, how you tease apart some of these elements is a, is a really interesting question. And these are certainly questions that patients have on the top of their minds, right? One of the things we want to do with the platform is exactly this, which is more transparently sharing with patients what the expectations of them. Mm -hmm. will be in participation right you're like the the timeline and logistics for the study look like this you know you visit once a week for the first month and once a month um, for six months and by the way travel and lodging there's a nearby um, hotel that's kind of covered and um, we take care of all that for you right even just like some of that up from communication is really yeah. hard to understand today and bring more transparency to that. I think will do um, a tremendous amount. So yeah, yeah, absolutely. Things that we were trying to explore in ways that we communicate with, uh, with patients.
1: I think there's some ways that you could do that that could be really streamlined. You know, um, thank you for participating in the study. Would you like to hear more about it as we conclude the research? Would you like to take five minutes mm-hmm. to participate on a survey for a $50 gift card and ask, you know, something around a couple of questions around your clinical site interaction. You know, if they've had any, some people have never interacted with a sponsor or know really who's behind there, but right, yeah. maybe a way to tease apart that I just, I mean, I mentioned this, I actually had to go to the airport at like two in the morning last night. And uh, oh, it made yeah. me just think about these like Delta airline, you know, automatic responses, how likely are you to do mm-hmm. this again? How would you rate the cabin staff? How would you rate the gate staff? tease that apart a little bit. Hopefully sponsors would be open to that and they can learn a little bit and know how to improve and how to, how to be a little better at that.
0: I love this idea of building a learning machine, right? Like not only are we a platform for patients in the moment as they're trying to figure out, you know, what studies make sense and how to participate in studies, but there's also this learning feedback loop we could provide back to sites and to sponsors around, Hey, like this patient gave you this feedback about this protocol. Uh, this was too burdensome. And over time having that. as a part of the patient voice patient engagement um, whatever term you want to um throw in it uh, could be a powerful mechanism to to support new ideas or change in the way that these studies designed. that's really interesting
1: somebody out there might be listening to us saying i'm doing that already and if you are fantastic
0: hands up in the chat if you're doing it already please we'd love to to talk to you next
1: (laughs) (laughs) for sure yeah well again just i mean that would you know how did you go from a c to a b grade in class how do you go from a b to an a maybe is right let's understand how that experience really was not just like we got our data in we closed our clinical trial we're filing it but what about those people that really you know were altruistic because you do have a fair amount of like i do a lot in the rare disease space and for the far 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 majority of rare patients there are no approved treatments right there are no options if there is standard of care it's generally pretty poor so people's only hope really is that clinical trial that they see coming out next year. They've been waiting for it. Their whole family's focused on it. It's a huge deal. We do still have for like the non-rare, you still have, um, there's still a little bit of a mindset out there. I'd be curious if you see this at all, where I hear this still, I feel like I heard this a lot more 10 years ago, but this idea of the field of dreams, if you build it, they will come like, we're going to put this clinical trial out there. Patients mm-hmm. should be lucky enough to enroll. This treatment's amazing. We don't have to think about making it less burdensome. We're going to put it out in the world and they will come flocking. And I think what we're learning is by the 65% of trials that are behind schedule is people have other things going on. People can't drive long distances. That's a huge commitment. So how much of that do you hear sort of this, this I guess it's a spectrum of, Let's cater to patients versus who cares? We're just gonna put it out there they'll 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 come because they're desperate and have nothing else. It's kind of harsh, but I wonder how much of that you hear out there.
0: I think I'm hearing less of that okay. really? I think I'm hearing a little bit more uh, a little bit more upfront consideration and thought around well, how do we engage patients how do we at least communicate that this study is available to patients. It's top of mind. At least, and, and you know, maybe I've got a little bit of kind of like sampling bias here because um, the partners we work with tend to be the ones who care a lot about this. Yeah. Um, that's why they're engaged with a platform like ours. Um, so uh, p- potentially some sampling bias there, but I'm certainly hearing a lot of, and, you know, this is a spectrum from, you know, small biotechs over to like top 20 pharma where um, we're hearing people who are actively interested in understanding how do they get the message out about their study opportunities? because. You know everybody can see that research is more competitive there's um there are options now um, plenty of options now um for a lot of these patients so Mm -hmm. the more question we're hearing is how do we get in front of patients and properly communicate the merits of this study so they can consider it um as one of the key questions today
1: yeah love it love it
0: yeah Scott, I want to I want to go back. I want to go all the way back to the beginning of the conversation. And you said something that I, uh, I I took a note on that I wanted to ask about, which was we're in this transition away from this, or there, there used to be this idea that a non-scientist, a non-physician, like could navigate the space. And we're transitioning more to self-advocacy, encouraging um, patient-driven research, pa- the patient voice. Could you talk to me about what you're seeing there in terms of encouraging and maybe the necessity around uh, advocating for yourself as a patient?
1: Sure. I think there's been great strides with. People, patients, subjects, participants—whichever unpleasant term we want to use—right, becoming empowered, having some knowledge at their fingertips. Seeing that um, there's some good examples, I think, of people who've who've really stepped up and led in a in a leadership way of representing patients as advocates. And you know, there's some there's some individuals out there. There's a there's a lot of really sort of powerful, knowledgeable, helpful, passionate patient advocates that um, may have a disease themselves, may take care of a child who has a disease, may take care of a, um, a parent who's older. They could be a caregiver, parent, patient, what have you. They've learned so much about managing their disease day to day, right? Around knowing like what to expect around, um, especially, and again, especially in the rare disease space, I think you learn a little bit more and it's, it's a little bit of our innovation lab of trying to push some things forward in, in drug development because, you know, physicians often don't see these cases very often. And that whole phrase of, you know, the, the symbol of rare, the zebra came about because, you know, the medical school training was if you hear hoof beats, you know, don't overthink it. It's probably a horse. Right. And we as kind of rare disease advocates say, well, don't forget about, you know, 10 percent of the time it's actually a rare disease don't overlook that. And maybe you only see that 10 times out of a hundred over the course of the year. So patients as a result have shown up and say, listen, I know that you think you might know what this is, but I've got to tell you, we've learned a lot about our condition, our disease, what's happening. And there's been a lot of, you know, that's really helped with that diagnostic journey that we see where it takes patients so long to even figure out what they have so that they can then find support and treatment. I just kudos to the patient advocates out there who, you know, some some in our industry still might be skeptical of, but they bring so much to the table around expertise and especially as we move towards, you know, real-world evidence being such a bigger part of the drug development and drug approval and post-approval process, you know, studying things as they occur out of outside of a controlled clinical trial, I think that's where advocates can even add a lot more value, right? Around this is what it's like for us, this is what our quality of life is like, this is the difference it made for us. You know, maybe not in an objective endpoint, but in a as a person who's sort of struggling with something, here's what this therapy did for me. So awesome progress there. You know, there's great, there's a lot of good patient organizations, of course, that are disease specific. And there's a couple kind of pan disease groups. But um, yeah, I mean, if you're developing a drug out there and you, you haven't pulled in some advocates to provide a great perspective, I feel like that's a blind spot. And I feel like I would encourage you to really, you know, bring them to the table and help them guide you a little bit.
0: Yeah. And maybe maybe talk a little bit more about engaging with patient advocates versus directly with the patients themselves. Um, the advocacy groups versus the patients themselves and the trade-offs of um, engaging with either party.
1: Sure. Yeah. And, you know, in pharma, we've learned really like, you know, patient privacy and data and keep everything at arm's length. And I think those regulations and compliance and stuff is in place for really, really good reasons. But I think if you're able to find um, some people who can kind of, you know, for better lack of a, you know, lack of a better term, represent or speak for patients or really understand that community, you know, let's say we're talking about one of the subtypes of cystic fibrosis, there are some nuances there around um, patients and what they're dealing with that you wouldn't even really consider sometimes. And especially if you're coming at it from more of a scientific drug development point, you would never really think, oh, we we can't have these two CF patients in the same room together. Um, no, you, you you can't, but you need to think about some of the details like that. And there's a lot of examples across disease areas where the advocates themselves who represent patients can really shed light on the reality of that situation, whether it's, it can be something around mobility, it can be something around, in a lot of cases, it could be around diets that we never really considered. And so I think you can go down this path by, you know, keeping some boundaries appropriately between Mm -hmm. yourself and patients, but speaking with advocates and representatives who can really talk about that day-to-day experience, you know, they should really be part of your, they should be part of your advisory board and your think tank, right? Mm -hmm. If you have a physician and a scientist and an operations person and, you know, that's a valuable perspective, I think. And, and uh, I think that's again, you know, rewinding, you know, 10 years ago, I felt like we talked about that a little bit. But now I think that's becoming much more commonplace. And so I applaud the companies out there that have advocacy departments, not just a singular person, mm. but actually people with legs and arms that can actually implement some projects. And we have chief patient officer summits now, and it's great. So that's great progress. So there is, you know, you know some of the class, if I if I'd give the industry a C, there's some parts, there's some classes where I think we've done better and maybe maybe we deserve like a B or a B plus maybe in an area like that.
0: I, I love this this theme of this letter grade. Um, <laughs> we, we could have a whole like running series around Scott's scorecard, and we could score like very specific things. <laughs> I think mean, that'd be that'd be a lot of fun. <laughs>
1: I think I'm hard, there's a, for some of you out there who have heard of the group Uplifting Athletes is a really great rare disease patient organization I support. And we give out uh, research grants to young investigators pursuing interesting treatments for rare diseases. We've established a scientific advisory board and we have a good rigor about our process. And every year we go through this grant review process and we all come together with how we scored grants. And I am by far the toughest one of the group. I don't know why. I don't need to be that hard. So maybe I have to. Maybe I have to think about that, Brandon. Maybe I have to no. raise up my grades a little bit.
0: No, 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 no. Great inflation is a problem. I think that. <laughs> um, I, I think. I think actually holding a high bar. Um, is important because it helps everybody aspire to more, right? And I think that we should all, like, understand that there's more that we can do. Um, so um, yeah. keep keep holding a high bar, uh, please. All right. All right. So I, I can't let you go without asking uh, about CROs. So um, you spent a lot of your career um, yeah. at CROs. What is the, the CRO's role here in terms of patient centricity? Like, what should CROs be doing differently?
1: Yeah, really great question. I think this, you know, patient centricity in a lot of ways has been a little bit ancillary to the core business of a clinical research organization and it's probably been a small little component and again these are mostly you know for the most part we're talking about for profit organizations that are looking to do good work but you know run and design clinical trials and 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 bring in some revenue and make a profit and that's great some of the parts that as we've moved towards a little bit more of a patient focused mindset in drug development. You've seen some different CROs start to incorporate roles like this. Uh, I previously built out a team of patient advocacy liaisons that allowed us to say, like let's say you're a biotech company in New Jersey and you have a person who represents patient advocacy in your organization, but it's only one person. They can be a good voice and advocate internally, but if you actually want to implement a program, they need help, right? So we developed some roles where we could support sponsors with being their legs and arms of interacting with advocacy groups, understanding how to engage them, understanding how to create really long term relationships, not just writing a check to support their conference once a year. But like, how do we learn from them? How do we what are they looking for? What can we bring to them and and create a good relationship that's collaborative? Not all advocacy groups, of course, are the same. There's a really dramatic spectrum from a mom and pop, you know, 30 people in the world have a disease. They're having a bake sale. They're trying to raise money to, you know, try to get something studied. On the other hand, you have the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation, which, um, you know, has, you know, well over a billion dollars in the bank and funds research, et cetera. So understanding where an advocacy group is really on the spectrum of, you know, Maybe how mature they are or do they have their own registries in place? Do they have fundraising? Are they identifying treatments? Are they um, connected with researchers? You can support biopharma in that way by um, helping understand the landscape of the advocacy groups. You know, you might need to go to, um, if you're an international global study, you may need to find an advocacy group in each of the countries that you're going in, right? So there's a lot to be done in that area, but we've made good progress with understanding how to kind of connect. And I think for the most people, for the most part, people have good intentions around wanting to create good relationships with groups like that. I don't I still don't think it's really the core business of a CRO, but I think well, you're seeing more and more of them kind of delve into it. Maybe their clients demand it or maybe they see that as a differentiator. You know, maybe there's something substantive they can bring to the table. To complement maybe therapeutic expertise, they can bring patient relationships. But as sometimes the, the hub of a clinical trial, I find that the CROs, you know, they touch the clinical sites, they touch the sponsor, they touch a lot of the other providers and technology. I've always felt that the CRO space is really the perfect area to push innovation, right? And be the ones of like, here's how we should do it, here's a new way of doing this better. And then trying to bring everyone on board so um there's been some steps obviously the, the theme is we've made some progress but there's more we can do i think zero yeah, step episode. up in there yeah
0: yeah the title of the episode scott's scorecard we've made some progress but uh, <laughs> more uh, work to, do. Get back more to, work it, to do yeah love that well hey we're brushing up against the the end of our time together i want to ask you maybe a closing question, which is uh, the magic wand question. Uh, internally, we, we call it that. If you had a magic wand and you can change anything about the way that we plan, conduct, um, look at research today, um, what would that be and
1: why? Well, you know, even though we're talking about patient-focused approaches, how do we engage with patients, how do we include them? I think still to me, I'm bothered by some of the timelines that things take too long, some of the administrative burden you see, You know, you want to open a clinical trial, it takes so long to get contracts, budgets, and IRB approval in place. If I could wave my magic wand, I would wave it and I would say, let's. I know every institution wants their own ethics committee to look at something. I would standardize and unify everything. So we had one ethics board, we had one contract template, and we had one budget template. And there was some sort of feedback mechanism up front to where that kind of somehow worked for everyone. And we could just execute all that electronically in one day and actually initiate a site the next day and enroll a patient in forty eight hours. That's what I would do. I'd wave my wand and I yeah. would cut through the red tape all the and paperwork. I would hustle that along. <laughs> yep. I'm sure that's yeah. super realistic in our litigious society here but um <laughs> that's what I think we need to do I think you could cut off like six months of every single trial and get a therapy in front of a patient and in their hands cool. dramatically faster so um yeah I don't know yeah. what about you do you have a, do you have a magic wand there with you that you have something in mind oh boy
0: without revealing I think a little bit too much of where we want to go as a Fair as a group here I do think that this idea of having it, actually I'll build on the theme that you just spoke about I think that if we can get to standardized systems and processes that are replicable across this like crazy stakeholder map of mm-hmm. research, um, things can move a lot faster, right? I hold that thesis uh, as well, but I don't want to talk a little bit, I don't want to talk too much about how yeah. we're going to get there because that's yeah, yeah, yeah. That's in the crosshairs for sure.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's okay. That's a, that's a yeah. vague waving of a magic wand, standardization, right?
0: It's, it's a yeah. vague wand, but it's magic. That's right.
1: Well, I love you guys doing it. Thank you. Great progress. Look forward to hear what these next developments hold for you. Thank you for all you're doing at Power. I look forward to kind of hearing what some of these next kind of developments are, and just thanks for thinking about patience.
0: Yeah, of course, Scott. And thank you for taking the time. I thought this was a uh, a really interesting uh, conversation. So thank you for coming on and and exploring these topics with me.
1: Super fun. But I really enjoyed it.
0: Thank you for tuning in. If you haven't already, please follow Power on LinkedIn, sign up for our live events, and engage with
1: us in the conversation. We hope to have you join us next time on Power to the Patients. Take care.